really. This year, our theme is Save One Soul in 2019. And we've talked about how we each need to make it our own personal goal to reach out and, and save one soul, to reach out and study with somebody and to get them to understand how much they need to become a child of God. And if we all are able to do that, everybody in here, the next year our attendance at this time could be 250 plus. But that's not the real reason to do it. Numbers are numbers. I realize souls are important, but that's not the biggest reason to do it. The biggest reason to do it is because that is what Jesus Christ shed his blood and saved us to do, as we have talked about in past sermons. While our theme is SOS in 2019, we were STS. We were saved to serve. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. We were saved to share the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 through 11. Brethren, I have seen what can happen, and maybe some of you have too, if this is not the only congregation you've ever attended. I've seen what can happen when a congregation hears messages similar to these lessons, and the general opinion and overall attitude is something like this. Hey, we're okay. We're doing just fine. Look around. We got some young folks, you know, we got some, we got some money in the bank, you know, we're, we're doing okay. Don't, don't bother us with the need to go out and get involved with personal evangelism. After all, we have lives to live, you know? And the same what can happen, and maybe some of you have too, if that is the general opinion, and people wouldn't listen to the, the urgings that we all need to be more evangelistic, sort of like those in Joshua and Caleb's day, and we know what happened there. God had promised them a victory in Numbers 13 and 14, and they just decided they weren't going to claim that victory, and just like that, a congregation that says, eh, you know, we're doing okay. I mean, look at our numbers. We're bigger than most of the congregations around. And like I say, we got some young people. we got some money in the bank. We're doing all right. We don't have to worry about this evangelism stuff. I've seen what can happen when that's the attitude and congregation begins a slow and steady decline because people are called to the home office, as it were. And one by one, the doors of the classrooms begin to close. The building gets quieter and quieter and the numbers go down and down and down. And so I was incredibly grateful to Kirk for his devotional and also for all of those here, those in leadership, those who have decided along with the leadership, both the elders, the deacons, and the rest of the members who have decided, you know what, I'm going to step out of my comfort zone. I am going to take SOS in 2019 seriously. I am going to seek to do this. I can do this with God's help. Philippians 4.13 still in the Bible? Is it? Sure is. I'm grateful for those, therefore, that are going to get out there and, and talk to people and make this a priority. In keeping with that thought, the lesson this morning is one that I had the privilege of actually preaching here about three years ago as part of a gospel meeting. Back in March of 2016. And I want to re preach it again this morning because 
It has everything to do with what we're talking about and it is so critical to understand. It deals with how if we truly want the church to grow, more than paying at lip service in a prayer now and then, if we really want the church to grow, then we need to stop inviting people to church. Or stop at least just simply inviting people to church. Brother Phil Sanders wrote some years ago in the searchlight, listen to this. The churches of Christ have declined in recent years. We are losing more than 8,000 members and 50 congregations a year. Did you hear that? What did Jesus say the price of one soul was? Limitless, infinite. And we are losing around 8,000 <coughs> members in 50 congregations every year. He goes on to say, as you can see, we have much to do to take the gospel to the lost. The world has always been worldly and deceived by false religion. We must do all we can to preach the truth in love so that by all means we might save some. I want you to think about the numbers and how they're going down in the Lord's church, worldwide, nationwide. And I want you to contrast that with this. Turn to me in your Bibles this morning to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verses 9 through 14. Now, as we know, in Matthew 24, the first part of the chapter has to do with the destruction of Jerusalem. It has to do with the events that are going to take place from 33 AD when Jesus is crucified to about 70 AD. Look what he says is going to happen during those 37 or so years. Matthew 24, verse 9. This is what he tells them. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. People are going to hate you, he says. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. They are going to be in for some terrible times over the next three plus decades. And he says this in verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. He's not talking about the end of the world. He's talking about the end of the Jews as God's chosen people. He's talking about the destruction of the Jerusalem, the destruct, destruction, what is my problem this morning? The destruction of Jerusalem, which would occur in 70 AD. And he says before that can happen, this gospel is going to be preached, watch this, to all the world. See it? To all the world. And according to Acts 17 and verse 6, they did indeed turn the world upside down with the gospel in only about 30 short years. 30 years! Turn the world upside down. In fact, Paul says in his epistle to the first century church of Christ in Colossae that the gospel did get preached to all the known world in those 30 plus years. Turn to me to Colossians 1. Look what he says. And of course, that, once that was done, then came the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. But look what he says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. Jesus had said in Matthew 24, this gospel's got to go into all the world. Then all of this is going to come to an end. 
Colossians 1, verses 21 through 23, Paul says this. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, notice that singular, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was, watch this, was preached, past tense, when this was written in the mid-60s, the gospel which was preached to every creature under heaven. In 30-something years, they took the gospel, despite all of the persecution, despite everything they went through, they took the gospel throughout the known world. Congregations grew like wildfire. You've read the book of Acts. You know how it goes. Congregations grew like wildfire. Imagine, imagine baptisms, not just on a yearly basis, not just on a monthly basis, not just on a weekly basis, but on a daily basis. Can you imagine that? Many congregations of the Lord's Church today have not had the waters of their baptistry stirred for months, if not years. I don't want a show of hands or anything like that, but I want you to think about this. When was the last time that there was a baptism here of somebody that did not grow up coming here? Think about it. Any congregation can think about that. But despite all the governmental persecutions on levels that we can't even, sitting here today in America in these padded pews with the government that we live under, we can't even begin to fathom what those people went through in the first century. Think of, think of the, the beatings and the torture and the stoning. People could walk in and say, well, you're a Christian. Either deny Christ or die, and you could die right there. You could be arrested. We don't go through that. They think about what they went through, and yet, despite it all, the church grew. How'd they do it? The church grew daily. And it, the church grew daily without radio, without television, believe it or not, without the internet. There was no social media. There was no Twitter. There was no Facebook and all that other stuff. And yet they grew like wildfire. How is that even possible? They did it without vacation Bible schools. They did it without youth rallies. They did it without tri-states. They did it without Bible camps. They did it without Monday night for the master. They did it without all of these printed resources that we have. How on earth did they grow like that? If we can get a hold of the answer to that question, you think that would help us? It ought to. And the, the answer is incredibly simple. The answer is so simple that when most people hear it, I get these, like I've, you know, my head cold has really affected me or something. The answer is so incredibly simple. We've just overlooked it. It is extremely sound, scriptural, and successful. It is the pattern we must follow if we want to see church growth occur today. And folks, it is not by inviting people to church. Let's look at some examples. In the book of Acts, Acts 2 doesn't count because that's the day the church was established. So they haven't gone out and I suppose you can say that's church growth. Well, yeah, it is because the church is established in Acts 2. 
But follow through with me in your Bibles. Turn to the book of Acts. Acts is the book of the pattern of the first century church. It's what the apostles did. It's the history of the church. And we, we claim to be that church, right? The church of Christ you see in the scriptures. Acts, that's our, that's our book. We want to be that church. Praise God. Well, if we want to be that church, then let's see how that church did evangelism so effectively. If we were to read Acts chapter 3, verse 1, through chapter 4 and verse 4, and we don't obviously have time to read every verse, but if we were to read Acts 3, 1, through chapter 4 and verse 4, we would see explosive, explosive church growth. Some people may say, well, yeah, but you know, they had miraculous signs. Okay. You know what the miraculous signs were used for according to Mark 16 and verse 20? Just to get people's attention. The miraculous signs didn't save anybody. The miraculous signs were to get people's attention so that once the apostles had the attention of everybody, guess what they could do? Preach the gospel. That's all the miraculous signs did. And so we look at that here, and I ask you the question, what did Peter do in Acts 3, verse 1, through chapter 4 and verse 4, once the miraculous sign got everybody's attention? Did he then invite the intrigued masses to church the following Sunday to hear the lesson? Is that what Peter did? He said, hey, why don't you come to church? Well, the church has been established, you know, and uh, back here in Acts 2, and I preached the first God. Why don't you just come to church on Sunday and let the preacher explain it to you? That's not what Peter did. What did he do? Chapter 3, verses 12 through 26. You know what he did? Peter preached the gospel to him on the spot. He didn't wait. He didn't invite him to church. He got him into the word of God right then and there. He did not hesitate. He did not wait. He got him into the word of God. That is exactly what he did. And what happened? Chapter 4, 1 through 4. Look at it. What happened? As they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. Acts 4, verse 1, now verse 2. Being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However... Many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Church growth exploded because they took them right then and there. When this miraculous sign caused all kinds of, of questions, boom, they answered the questions. Took it up right then and there. Look at me in Acts chapter 5, verse 42. Look what it says. Acts chapter 5, verse 42. Note the everyday answering the questions on the spot. It says, and daily. They didn't wait for Sunday. They said, hey, why don't you come to church Sunday? And daily, in the temple, and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Now in those days, chapter 6, verse 1, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, it wasn't adding, it was multiplying. Why? Because they're teaching every day. They didn't stop telling people about Jesus. Did it every day, all over the place, everywhere they went. They were teaching people about Jesus. And it says in chapter 6 and verse 1, 
that the number of the disciples was multiplying. You suppose that's got anything to do with the way they were doing it? There arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. What are they saying? We're going to keep it on preaching and teaching every day, every house, all the time. We're going to tell people about Jesus. We need to take care of this problem, but we're not going to stop presenting the word to do it. Look at me in Acts chapter 7, verse 58. They stoned Stephen, as we know. Acts 7 Verse 58, they cast him out of the city and stoned him. The witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Verse 60, then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, chapter 8, verse 1, Saul was consenting to his death. And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Persecution breaks out against the whole church. The whole church is scattered all over the place. They have to run for their lives, in effect, except the professional preachers, the apostles. And so what did these common, everyday folks do that had to run for their lives because they were Christians. What did they do? These everyday folks. Look at verse 4 of chapter 8 of Acts. Those who were scattered, not the apostles, not the professional preachers, those who were scattered went everywhere doing what? Preaching the word. Everyday people, just like you and me. Everyday people. They had to run for their lives and everywhere they went, they told somebody how awesome their God was. They told them about Jesus Christ. They told them about this hope that they had. And it wasn't the professionals. It was the rest of the church. It says in verse 5, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Now we know Philip was what we would call a deacon from Acts 6. We understand that. But he went down to the city of Samaria, and what did he do? He preached Christ. What happened when he did? Look at verse 12. When they believed him, when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God, the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. All they did was tell everybody they knew about Jesus. Common folk. That's what they did. Look with me in Acts chapter 8. In Acts 8, we know we have the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, verses 26 through 39. We have a story of his conversion. I want to begin reading in verse 30. So Philip ran to him, heard him reading the prophet Isaiah, and said, do you understand what you're reading? By the way, have you ever noticed in the book of Acts that almost everybody that was converted to Christ and became a member of the church was already religious before that? You know, sometimes we don't want to go to people in denominations because we say, well, you know, they're, they're, they're just so locked in. And did you know the 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, were they already Jewish? Were they religious? Sure they were, or else they wouldn't have been there the day of Pentecost. They were converted from Judaism. As we look at this eunuch, he had been to Jerusalem to worship. This was a religious man. Yet he's converted to Christ. 
And as we look through a lot of these examples, we see that these were people that were already involved in another religion. You know what folks prove who are in another religion? You know what they prove? That they're interested in God. And sometimes that makes it easier, not easier, but it makes it more fertile ground for the word if we go to people who have already shown an interest in God than somebody that just don't care. That's a good thing to keep in mind as you read about these stories. Continuing on, verse 31 of Acts 8, and he said, how can I? How can I understand that that is unless someone guides me? He asked Philip to come up and sit with him. Tells what he's reading in verses 32 and 3. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or some other man? This would be like somebody pulling you aside at work and saying, hey, i got a question. I know you go to church. I was reading my Bible the other day where it says this. Uh, let me ask you a question. Does, who's he talk, what's that talking about in this verse? And Philip said, tell you what, why don't you come to church on Sunday and the preacher will explain it to you. That's not what it says, is it? There's no version in this room that says that, and if it is, you better trash it. What does it say in the next verse? What does it say in verse 35? It says, then. Don't lose the word then. Right then and there. Right then. Philip opened his mouth, and beginning at this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. What happened? Guy was converted and became a Christian, didn't he? Philip didn't wait. Philip didn't say, eh, I don't know, I'm not real comfortable. I've got a comfort zone and you ain't it, buddy. What did he say? Took him from where he was, preached Jesus to him. So they come along to this water. You know, if we can just get people to fall in love with Jesus. Are you in love with Jesus? I'm in love with Jesus. Raise your hand if you're in love with Jesus. Okay? If we can get people to fall in love with Jesus, if we can get people to understand that they're lost in sin without Christ, and we can preach Jesus to him. That's verse 35. Did you see it? Beginning at that very verse, he preached Jesus to him. If we can get them to fall in love with Jesus, they go down the road and they see some water, and Eunuch says, look, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip says, you can if you believe with all your heart. He's added to the church. If we can get people to fall in love with Jesus, they're not going to say, well, I know about this whole baptism thing. It's going to be the attitude of, well, what does Jesus want me to do? If they're in love with Jesus, what does Jesus want? Then we can take them here and it'll be easier to convert them, won't it? I believe it will. The Apostle Peter in Acts 10. When he went to Cornelius' house, he's a guest. In a pagan's house. Not, not a pagan, I'm sorry. In a Gentile's house. Big difference. In a Gentile's house. And when he goes into Cornelius' house, he doesn't say, Cornelius, tell you what. I'd really like to have you in your house come to church with me on Sunday. We're having fellowship dinner after. You can, you can sit in the pew with me and, and we can let the preacher tell you about salvation. That's not what he did. Not saying anything wrong with that, but that's not how they did it. Look at me in Acts chapter 11. And I'm not saying it's never, I'm not saying it's never right to invite somebody to church, but what I'm saying is sometimes if we even step out on a little bit of faith, and we invite somebody to church, we think that somehow that's going to do it. That's not the way they did it. That's all I'm saying. We've lost sight of how they did it, and the way they did it worked. Acts 11, starting at verse 19, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen, it takes you right back to Acts 7 and 8, picks up there. 
Some of those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke up to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. These are people who were there on the day of Pentecost. They heard the message. They saw what happened. The church is scattered. These aren't professionals. These are members of the church. And they go back to these countries, and, and they just start telling people about Jesus. And what happened? Look at the next verse. And the hand of the Lord was with them in a great number. Wouldn't it be great to look back next year at this time and say, wow, in 2019, a great number of the folks around Shoto were converted to Christ. Wouldn't that be awesome to say? This is how they did it. Note the same pattern in Acts chapter 16, starting at verse 13. Acts 16, starting at verse 13. On the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Just sit down and start a conversation with them. They went out on purpose to this place because they figured they'd find some religious folk there. They sat down and spoke to them and a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God, and the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul when she and her household were baptized. Boom. About the jailer in Acts chapter 16, starting at verse 30. After the earthquake and stuff, verse 30, the jailer brings them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Now, it's late. It's, you know, around midnight sometime. It's the middle of the night. It's like, man. Can you picture Paul saying, hey, tell you what, it's really late. It is really late. Do you guys think maybe, why don't you come to church with us on Sunday? What did Paul do? Notice the word then, right, then and there. So many times you see the word then. It says verse 32, then, right then. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. He took them that same hour of the night and washed their stripes, and immediately, what happened? Boom. You got another family in Christ. Ain't that awesome? Can I say ain't over here? Isn't that incredible? But it didn't matter how late it was. It didn't matter that Paul had just been beaten put in stocks and punished. And I know we all have hard days. Listen, we all have hard days. We're all human. We have days we get through that are miserable, okay? And we're tired. And I get that. I get tired too. Even though I only work three hours a week, right? But the thing we have got to understand is if somebody's got a question and they want to talk about Jesus Christ, the way they were converted in the scripture is that very hour of the night. They will talk to them. They don't wait for Sunday to invite them to church. Whole household was saved. If we were to look at Acts 18, 4 through 11, or Ephesians 19, 8 through 10, yeah, Ephesians, right, Acts 19, 8 through 10, we'd see the same pattern, but we've seen it a lot. I want to take what we've talked about thus far and summarize it this way. Four scriptural facts of the matter that we have looked at. Number one, the first century Church of Christ despite every obstacle imaginable, grew like wildfire, didn't they? they? They multiplied. They didn't add, they multiplied. Number two, 
We as churches of Christ claim to be the church in the New Testament, Romans 16, 16. We claim to call Bible things by Bible names and do Bible things in Bible ways, don't we? We do. Number three, we believe as God's people that Almighty God left for us in his word a pattern for all things we ought to do. Is that correct? Absolutely correct. Number four. We also reject out of hand the sinner's prayer of faith for salvation because that ain't in the book. Is that right? Put all four of those together and this is what you come up with. Why is it then when it comes to evangelism and church growth that we step completely outside of the divinely inspired biblical pattern and we try to do biblical evangelism by a method that is never even once seen, mentioned, or hinted at in the biblical text by inviting people to church. Let me ask you a question. Is there any place in the New Testament whatsoever, anywhere, where it says, and they invited them to church on Sunday? Is that in the book? It's not in the book, is it? Neither is the sinner's prayer, and we reject the sinner's prayer out of hand because it ain't in the book. So, why is it that we seek to do evangelism by a way that's never seen even once in the book, anywhere, inviting people to church? Why is it we seek to do that that's never seen in the book, but we reject the sinner's prayer because it's never seen in the book? How does that work? Hmm. Think about that. The rest of the lesson line is this. If we want the church to grow, we must stop simply inviting people to church and instead start instantly and individually getting them into an investigation of the scriptures with us personally at every opportunity. That's how the church grew. That's how they did evangelism in the first century. You know how they did evangelism? They didn't do it in church building. You know how they did evangelism? Where'd they do it? They did it in the streets. Paul did it in the marketplace, is that right? Banks of a river, you ever go fishing with somebody that's not a Christian? Banks of a river, Paul's doing evangelism. The streets, the marketplaces, the prisons, private homes, from house to house, and on the banks of a river. Constantly doing evangelism, constantly telling everybody they knew about Jesus. And it wasn't just the apostles, it was every grateful, saved member of the church. That's who it was. That's why they grew. Remember, for those of you that have bred muscle and a shovel, remember Randall? We used to get newsletters about Michael Shank and all the baptisms that came from people reading this book, and it was in the thousands, and all started because one man, Randall, one man, one, one, one. What did he do? He was a co-worker, Michael Shanks. And what did he do? Talked to him constantly about the truth, didn't he? What happened? That sound like the biblical pattern to you? I have something I want to read for you. In the Waldron newsletter for August 2015, it said this. According to the 2015 edition of Churches of Christ in the United States, there were 13,155 congregations in 2003, 
with 1,656,495 adherents. Then he went on to report this. That was in 2003. By 2006, 192 congregations had disappeared. By 2009, another 334 congregations had disappeared. By 2012, another 182 congregations had disappeared. Every three years, averaged about 150 congregations lost. Then he went on to report this, and to me this blows my mind. Listen carefully. He said 35 years ago, this again is Brother Waldron, 35 years ago, we and the Mormons, be about 40 years now, 40 years ago, we, Churches of Christ, and the Mormons were about the same size. While we stand at approximately one and a half million members today, they have six million members. <coughs> Think about that. We're about the same size 40 years ago, and today they are 400% larger than we are. We're 1.5 million, they are six million. Does that bother you? That bothers me. You know why it bothers me? Because if you know anything about the Mormon doctrine, you know that a lot of their doctrines are as far away from biblical truth as you can get. I'm talking about the doctrines. And we have book, chapter, and verse, black and white, and, and they're four times our size. How does that work? Brother Waldron says they have grown because of legwork, the riding of bicycles, and the pounding of pavements. In other words, they're out there personally getting the job done. And even with the error in their doctrine, they are four times bigger than we are. And we come out of the starting gate 40 years ago, same size. I have a question for us to consider, and I don't mean to upset anybody. And by the way, I don't know who's invited people to church and who hasn't, but if you have, this isn't a sermon that's supposed to make you upset either. That's not my point, okay? I've invited people too. I've just seen that that ain't the way they did it. But, but here's the question. And, and please don't be upset. Just consider the question. Are the Mormons as far off from the truth of the word of God as they are in so many areas? Are they actually closer to the truth and compliance with God's word than we are when it comes to spreading the message? You need to think about that. Because they're out there personally, individually, pounding the streets to get it done, aren't they? Are they actually closer to what God's word says when it comes to all members rather than just inviting them, being out there? Let me read for you a passage and then you decide if you're still on the fence. Ephesians 4, look at it with me, would you please? Ephesians 4, verse 11. He gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. What are the elders' jobs? What are the teachers' jobs? What is the preacher's job? Verse 12. For the equipping of the saints. That's what he says in this passage. 
the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the, the elders and teachers, and I realize we don't have apostles today, I understand that, we don't have prophets today, I understand the church is a nonprofit organization, I get that, okay? But we have evangelists, we have elders, we have teachers. What is their purpose? Why did God give those people to the church? Here's why. Look at the next verse. To equip everybody else for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, that we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into all things and to him who is the head, Christ, watch this, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share. Did he leave anybody out? If he left you out in this passage, raise your hand. Okay, he did. He said every member, every member effectively working. What does he say that's going to cause? See it there in that verse? What does he say? He says it's going to cause growth in the body. You want the church to grow? There's the pattern. Every member. Now, it's just as much the preacher's job and the elder's job and the teacher's job to evangelize too, but they have an added responsibility to train everybody else in how to do it as well. They're not off the hook. But brethren, verse 16 is the key. Every part working together effectively, that's what causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. If we truly trust God and want his church to grow, then the only way we can make it happen is for us to understand how to make it happen. I have a couple of quick related questions before we close. Where do you see in the scriptures that the worship assembly was designed and purposed to be an evangelistic thing? Where in the scriptures do you see the worship assembly where its primary purpose is to evangelize. You don't. You know what the purpose of the worship assembly is? Edify the saints. When Karen and I travel back home to, to Maine, our other home, when we travel back home to Maine, we will, we, it's a 31-hour drive. We don't fly, we drive. And when we travel, every four or five hours, we have to stop and fuel up the car and you know get something to eat and all that. Are those stops our destination? No. What are those stops? Those stops are where we get the fuel, whether for the vehicle or us, to continue the next four or five hours of travel. Is that right? You know what church is? Church is a fuel stop on Sunday that is to power us for the next six days. We come here to worship God. We come here to pour our hearts out in praise. We come here to encourage one another and to be encouraged to do what? Go out there and save souls. This is a fuel stop. That's what this is. And finally, as I hinted at in the Bible class this morning, what is unique about the churches of Christ? I'll tell you what's unique about the churches of Christ. Everything we do and practice is book, chapter, and verse, black and white, right? So our strength, the thing that led me, that led Karen and I both to the church of Christ, was the fact that every question I answered, they'd open the Bible and show us an answer. I love that. 
So our strength is the Bible and what it says. So when we want to bring people into the church, why do we do what everybody else does instead of relying on our strength? Why do we simply invite them? Anybody can invite anybody to anything they believe in. People ever invited you to a party you didn't want to go to? They were excited about it, so they invited you. People invite you to all kinds of religious stuff. And if we just simply invite people, then we sound like everybody else. But brethren, when people have questions, if we as individuals just take out our Bibles and talk with them and get them into the Word of God right on the spot, right then and there, that's our strength. That's our strength. And if we're taking our strength and we're throwing it out the window on evangelism, no wonder we ain't growing. If we'd start opening the Word of God with them on the spot, for book, chapter, and proof of book, chapter, and verse proof of everything we do, that would set us apart as one in a million instead of one amongst a million. We must stop inviting people to come to the worship assembly in hopes that they will come to Christ and instead invite them to come to Christ so that they will have a hope that will bring them to worship. When was the last time you personally sat down and had a serious book, chapter, and verse Bible study with somebody who was not a member of your own family? When the first century church did that? Wow. Wow. Growth exploded. This is the great commission we share with Jesus Christ himself. This morning, if I stepped on your toes, Apologize, I'm a lousy shot. I was aiming for your heart. That's what the book says. That's how it worked. And I am confident in this pattern that if we will do it according to this pattern, it'll work still. All of you know people that are lost. I don't care if you're 15, 115, and everything in between. You know somebody that's lost. Go talk to them about Jesus. I can't reach all of your friends. They ain't going to trust me because I'm a preacher. But the ones you've developed a good working relationship with that know the integrity that you have, people that you've dealt with and you've been honest in Christ, like they're going to trust you. Talk to them. I guarantee you this. Once you've led somebody to Christ, you ain't going to want to stop with one. When you watch that new baby grow. Isn't it beautiful to see a new baby come into the world? New baby in Christ is born of the water and the spirit. And if you were the one that brought that person to Christ, you go on, go get another one. That's how it works. Go get somebody. This morning, if you're here, you've never obeyed the gospel by repenting of your sins and becoming a child of God, or if you're somebody here that's done that, but just hasn't dawned on you how important this is, and you need the prayers of the church. Maybe you're somebody, and I, I applaud Charlie this morning. He said he got out of his comfort zone, and that's what it takes. Because if we keep doing the same things the same way, we're crazy to expect different results. But he stepped out. Maybe you need the church to pray for you to, for more faith to just step out and go talk to somebody. If you need the prayers of the church or to become a member of the church this morning, don't, don't sit there. Come to the front and let us pray for you as we stand and sing.